Thank you for those songs, and I hope that those minister to you as uh, you sang in your living rooms and your home. Uh, let me encourage you to take a Bible and go to Mark 15, if you will. Uh, we've been going through Mark's gospel for quite a while now, and uh, we were able to work out the, uh, the, the, the calendar, so the preaching calendar, so that on uh, Easter Sunday, we came to this text here. And so i uh, looking forward to going through this together today. Um, you know, one of the beautiful complexities and mysteries of humanity is our ability to have conflicting or even competing emotions at the same time. It's possible to grieve and yet be joyful, uh, happy and sad, and all in the same moment. And you don't have to be a, a musician to understand or to recognize what's called a minor key. Uh, such keys typically evoke feelings of sadness or sobriety. That doesn't mean these songs can't be celebratory, but it means that it tends to be a more somber celebration. So songs like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or What Child Is This are examples of songs written in a minor key, and they tend to be celebratory, but more somber than songs like Joy to the World or Heart the Herald, Angel Sing. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this is I feel like that this Easter is in a minor key this year. Uh, there are two main reasons why I think that, and the first is most obvious is that we're not meeting together. Um, uh, I, I long to get back together. And one of the traditions that our church enjoys is an Easter breakfast, typically. I was talking with my daughter this week, and she told me she was sad that we weren't going to have our Easter breakfast together this year. And so for that reason, because we can't meet together, I feel like this Easter celebration is still a celebration, and nothing can take away from that fact. But it's in a minor key this year. We can't get together. But more than that, more than just the current events that we find ourselves in, I believe Mark's gospel points us to that. And I believe that the way Mark has written this account and the way he recounts the resurrection and the, and the death and burial of Jesus Christ is more in a minor key. And so let me read the text for you. I'm going to read uh, Mark 15, verse 42. I'm going to go all the way through chapter 16 and verse 14. And if you have a copy of the scriptures nearby, I encourage you to, to read along. And Mark 15, verse 42, it says this. And when evening had come, this is Jesus, he's on the, the cross and he has just died. And when evening had come, since it was the day of the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought a bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? 
And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, and trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And so, like I said, Mark's account of this, like if you compare it to any of the rest of the the gospel writers, it seems to strike more of a a minor key than the other accounts. And why do I think that? What do I mean by that? I'm going to show you. But first, let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time in God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I just want to ask you right now that as I communicate uh, from this text that I'd be led by your Spirit. And I pray that those who are listening would be able to focus in and and distractions would be minimized and that this time together in your word would be profitable for your glory and for our good. And the only way that's going to happen is if your spirit guides us and leads us. And so that's what we're asking for. We want to be submitted to you and to your word and to your spirit. For it's in these things we do pray. Amen. What do I mean by Mark striking a minor key in this is this is that unbelief and fear are the most obvious themes in Mark's minor key Easter celebration. It's unbelief and fear that he, he highlights, it seems like. And so we're going to talk about why this is a, still a celebration, but it, just, it may be in a different way than we typically think of on Easter. And so let me, let me just walk us through that. First of all, is that when Mark points out something, he's pointing out not necessarily the, the, the things that other gospel writers would point out as celebratory. He points out and talks about Joseph of Arimathea, but he doesn't give the full details like other uh, gospel writers do. He just mentions him. And I believe one of the things is that he's talking about here is that it took a closet disciple to care for Jesus. You see, we see we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea in verse 43. Uh, we know that he's a respected member of the council. Um, we know that uh, what that's referring to the Sanhedrin. And so he uh, uh, obviously was someone who was part of or should have been part of the proceedings that uh, convicted Jesus of the crimes. Now, it's possible that he wasn't there. But the reality is is that he was part of that group and that he was looking forward. Mark says he's looking, himself was looking for uh, for the kingdom of God. 
And now that could be talking about a lot of things in, in terms of just waiting for the Messiah to come. Not necessarily the Messiah, the true Messiah that, that was pro, uh, prophesied in terms of Jesus. But it could be that they were, he was just looking for the restoration of Israel that he was waiting for. But other accounts, other writers talk about how that he was a good man and he was a just man and he was a righteous man in, in many ways. But because of the fact that he was well-respected in the Sanhedrin, it's reasonable, it's plausible to assume that he was not uh, uh, very vocal about his uh, feelings about Jesus, of Jesus' innocence, because the whole Sanhedrin was against Jesus at this point. And so it had been very unpopular for Joseph to have uh, any type of public support of Jesus. In fact, it probably just wouldn't have happened. And so fear ruled these disciples. Fear ruled all the disciples, the ones who left Jesus in the garden. But Joseph here, he was someone who was also afraid in so many ways, I believe, because of the way it talks about he took courage there, is that it almost came upon him finally, that he was able to finally get courage. And beforehand, he was potentially ruled by fear in some ways. And now my, my goal isn't to, to talk bad about Joseph of Arimathea. My goal is to show that, that even in terms of when Jesus is on the cross and who is going to care for him after he dies, the disciples that were around Jesus and with Jesus for his earthly ministry, they are nowhere to be seen. You can't find them anywhere. And so it takes this closet disciple to finally get some courage and to come and care for the body of Jesus. Now, this would have been something that would have been uh, important to the Jews uh, because they didn't want the body to be on the cross uh, over Sabbath, and they definitely didn't want, or Joseph assumingly didn't want the body just to be thrown outside the city uh, walls like what was typically done by the Romans. And so Joseph, he took courage, and it was something that he wanted to, to make sure that the body of Jesus was preserved, but it wasn't any of the closest disciples. It wasn't the people that you would normally think of that should be there. It was this closet disciple. Did he vote for Jesus' death out of fear? I don't know. Maybe he abstained. Maybe he was absent from the vote. We don't know. But we do know that he was part of the group of people that did condemn Jesus to be turned over to the Romans for death. And so he was a disciple in conflict. And he was a disciple that finally took courage. And there's the, there's the celebration. You see, in every part of the minor key part of this scenario, every part of the more thoughtful or pensive or the more sad element to the story, there's still celebration. And in this Easter celebration, no matter the fact that even though we can't meet together, there's still celebration. It's, it's different and it feels different, but it's, but it's different. And, and, and it's still celebratory. And the, celebra the celebratory part of this is that even though it was a closet uh, a disciple that took care of Jesus' body, that a closet disciple found courage. A, a closet disciple came out with his faith, so to speak. And he was someone who wanted to be known as a Christ follower because for him to ask Pilate for the body was a risky thing. Uh, it was at this point he was aligning himself with Jesus. At this point he was showing that he cared about this person who was just condemned. He was just condemned as someone who was uh, uh, against Rome, if you will. That was the charge, is that he was uh, an insurrectionist. And so the, for him to align himself with Jesus was a great act of courage. And so in this Easter celebration, we can see the example of a, of a disciple who started out maybe in conflict, maybe lacking courage, 
But somewhere along the line, when he saw Jesus die, and he saw what that meant, that gave him courage to be bold in his faith. And I believe that there's plenty of people who are watching or people who go to church occasionally and and they're trying to figure out, maybe they're in conflict or there's people who come to church every week and they're in conflict. And they're in conflict about what they believe about Jesus and they're in conflict about whether they can be courageous in their fellowship and discipleship of Jesus. Let me encourage you on this minor key Easter, let me encourage you to be like Joseph of Arimathea and find courage and follow Christ and identify with him. Joseph never, did, never doubted that or never uh, 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 regretted that decision, I believe, after this. And so Joseph was someone who cared for Jesus. Now, there's another reason why, as I see, it was Mark, as he's, as he's explaining this resurrection story, of why I believe it'd be more in the minor key and, and more of a, a, a subtle or sober or sad recognition as this, is that the way that Mark accounts this is that no one thought that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. You look throughout the text here, it's all about unbelief. It's all about people who did not believe. And there's the grief part of this, is that everyone who interacted with Jesus' body after death apparently didn't think that he was going to rise from the dead. Joseph even didn't at this point, is is because uh, we know from John's gospel that he and a man by the name of Nicodemus bought 75 pounds worth of spices to protect the body. Now, in that day, that wasn't, the Jews didn't embalm bodies, and so that wasn't what the spices were for. What they would do is they would take bodies and they would put them in the tombs, And then they would pack it and wrap it around with spices, and that was simply to combat the the odors of body decomposition. And so once the body would sufficiently decompose inside the tomb, they would go back in and they would take the bones and put them in a small box, and then they would be held in different family uh, 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 sanctuaries or wherever they would store them, and then that tomb would be reused again. Now, this tomb was never used before. We know that from the gospel accounts, but that was the procedure. And so when uh, Joseph and Nicodemus take 75 pounds of spices and they wrap Jesus' body in it, they are fully expecting his body to decay and for him to stay dead. And so there was no understanding that Jesus would rise from the dead. Later on in the next morning, when the women approached the tomb, they also are bringing spices. Now, whether or not they knew that Joseph and, and Nicodemus brought the spices, I don't know. They did know that they, they put the body there. Maybe they felt that they wanted to add their own uh, way of honoring Jesus' body. But the fact that they were bringing spices, the fact that they were bringing things to the body, to the tomb, they assumed that the body would be there. They assumed that Jesus would be dead. In fact, even the conversation they have as they're walking, saying, who's going to roll the stone away? They assumed that Jesus' body would be there, even though Jesus in his teaching many times had said that he would rise again. And Mary was there for some of it. But there was no belief there. Maybe it was a forgotten thing. And my point isn't to talk bad about these disciples of Jesus because you and I struggle with unbelief too, don't we? And so there's, there's, there's this celebration in the minor key this year of Easter of that unbelief is, is surrounding this, surrounding what Jesus is doing here. We see later on that, that uh, in verses 9 and following here, we see that then when Mary and the women, they do start talking about Jesus, when they talk to the disciples, the disciples don't believe them. And we talked about how then when uh, Mark goes on to talk about how that the, the, when Jesus had the conversation with the two people, we know from Luke's gospel, these are the two for, that are on the road to Emmaus. And when they go back and tell people they didn't believe them when they had seen Jesus. 
Jesus, we ended our reading today in verse 14 of chapter 16, where Jesus is after the resurrection. He's finally met, met with the disciples, and he rebukes them for not believing. Did you, did you see the theme that just comes through this text all the time about how the, the, the people around Jesus and his resurrection, they didn't believe it. They didn't think it was going to happen here. But here's the, the minor key celebration in this, is that unbelief didn't stop the miracle. Do you remember earlier in Jesus' ministry when he was going uh, throughout and he came to Nazareth and he said this, and this is in chapter 6 and uh, verse 5, and he says that there was, he did not many uh, works there because of their unbelief. And there was times where Jesus, where he would not do something that uh, a miraculous work because of people's unbelief. In fact, that was always the key. That was always something that he said. He says, will you believe or do you have faith? And I remember there was people that would say, yes, I do believe. And then one person says, but help my unbelief. And, and that was always a stipulation for Jesus is that people would believe in him and then he would do that because faith is crucial. But here for the resurrection... Perfect faith is not necessary. There's the celebration in this minor key celebration is that even though this account is surrounded and infused with unbelief, that that didn't stop the miracle. And the fact that the, our, uh, having perfect faith is not necessary in order for us to celebrate and to understand and to benefit from the empty tomb. And so we see the celebration here that Mark is saying in a minor key, of course, because it's surrounded by unbelief and it's surrounded by people not believing and, and people not uh, uh, remembering what Jesus had promised was going to happen. But Jesus still rose from the dead. He didn't require perfect faith of his followers in order for him to rise from the dead and conquer death and conquer sin. That wasn't what was required. His obedience to the Father is what was required. So we can celebrate that this morning. There's one other thing I want to share about why or how I believe Mark is is celebrating the Easter story, but in a minor key, and that is not just because there was unbelief and not just because it took a, a, a closet disciple to care for Jesus. And that is, is that it seems that Mark ends his gospel with fear. Now, I probably will talk more about this next week, but in some of your translations, some of your Bibles, you'll see at the end of verse 8, you'll see a break there. And uh, this is something that uh, modern translators have put in there. And they'll say something to the effect, like my translation says, uh, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And that's true. Um, The earliest manuscripts of this book that we have available to us, it ends at verse 8. And there's lots of theories about that, and there's lots of theories of how we got verses 9 through 20, and, um, but most surely or most certainly that verses 9 through 20 were most likely added by someone else after Mark finished his gospel. And, and there's a lot of evidence for that one way or another, and there's a lot of theories. I can't say dogmatically that's the case, but looking at the evidence, that's what I believe. I believe that Mark's he set his pen down at the end of verse 8. And then other persons, and maybe a scribe later on, who was unsatisfied with how Mark ended the gospel, felt like he needed to uh, uh, finish the story a little bit and needed to round that out. And he picked up the pen at this other scribe and, and added, it's called a gloss, and he put it into this so that it would be kind of complete. But the way that the language is used and the, and the vocabulary and the grammar is completely different. Once you get past verse 8, it sounds like 
a completely different person writing. And I believe that this is where it broke, by the textual evidence and by the stylistic evidence. And now that's not really important, and don't let that shake your faith about whether or not the Bible is trustworthy. It's all trustworthy, and this is still trustworthy. Verses 9 through 20 are trustworthy, and we'll talk about that next week as well. But I do believe that Mark ended at verse 8. And if he ended at verse 8, look how it ends. And they went out and fled the tomb, and trembling in astonishment, had, for the trembling in astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then Mark puts the pen down. That seems like a very odd way to end. It seems sad almost. It seems anticlimactic. It seems that in the beginning, and this is one of the reasons why some people argue for the inclusion of verses 9 through 20, is they, they just can't conceive that Mark would end there. But I believe that he did. And I believe that he did end there because it really promotes thought. It really promotes thinking of what am I going to do with Jesus? What am I going to do in response to this? How am I going to respond to what Jesus has asked me to do here? And so it seems here that when well, the last thing that Mark is writing about is the fear of these women, and they didn't tell anyone at first. Did they fear that the news would be too good to be true? Did they fear that, that the, what the angel had told them, it was just simply too good to be true that Jesus was alive? We know that there are some doubts. We know that Mary, when she meets Jesus, and, and Mark doesn't record this for us, other gospel writers do, but when Mary meets Jesus, she asked him because she doesn't recognize him at first. She says, where have they taken my, 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 my Lord's body? Where have they taken it? She thought he was the gardener. The idea of, of Jesus rising from the dead just wasn't on her mind. She was afraid. Maybe the thought uh, the news was too good to be true. Maybe they feared that people wouldn't believe them. Maybe they didn't believe it, but they felt like people wouldn't believe them. The angel had told them to go tell the story about Jesus rising from the dead to the disciples, but they thought, well, maybe they're not going to believe me, and maybe they're going to mock us. Maybe they feared that the angel was lying. We don't know. We don't know all this, but we do know that she was afraid, that they, they were afraid. And, and, I don't, and I don't fault them at all, honestly. This is not me uh, a couple thousand years later looking back and assuming that I would have reacted any better. It was a very scary time. It was a time that was uncertain. It was unprecedented. You see, you and I, as we're looking at the story, we know what happened. We know all the details. We know everything, and we know the stories, and we know exactly how it ended. And so we can kind of take that and put it into this story and think that she should have believed. But, but if we put ourselves in their shoes in those moments where we didn't know the ending, it would be very easy to be afraid. And this is one of the reasons why many people think that a scribe later on did add verses 9 through 20 is because they did know the ending. They felt like the story just had to be completed. And so the minor key celebration here, I want to point out in this, though, is this, is notice this, that what the angel has asked the women to do. You see, I believe this is one of the reasons why Mark wants to end here, is he wants this to hang in people's minds. I'll read it again for you. It says this, don't be alarmed. I'm in verse 6 of Mark 16. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. And he says, see the place where they laid him. And so he shows it to them. It says, this is where he was. He's not here any longer. But then the angel says this to the, to the women. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. 
This is the, the ending here that Mark wants us to wrestle with, is that, that there is an angelic message to the disciples, and that is this. It says, the Savior wants to see you. Now, why is that significant? Well, the last we heard, every disciple had fled the scene in fear. The last we heard, Peter, who was specifically marked out by the angel here, and I believe for this reason, had just denied Jesus three times. So the message of the angel is simple. He says, your, ma- your master wants to see you. He loves you. He is willing to forgive and restore you. The empty tomb didn't mean that Jesus was out ready for revenge. The empty tomb meant that Jesus was out ready to reconcile people to himself. And so the minor key celebration in this element is that forgiveness and restoration is available. And that's what Mark wants us to hang on to, hang on to at the end of his gospel here. Is he says that this is something that the angels wanted the disciples to know. They were scared. They were afraid. They didn't know what was happening. They were ashamed of what they had done most likely. And can you imagine what they would have felt like the first thoughts when Jesus had risen again? They would be grateful, but they would be a little bit of scaredness as well of what is he going to say to us. And we do know that he, Jesus does gently tell them that they should have believed, but he's very kind to them, we know from other gospels. So this minor key celebration, this minor key Easter celebration this year is that even though there's doubts and even though there is denial and even though there's weak faith, forgiveness and restoration, reconciliation is always available. And that's what the empty tomb is saying. The empty tomb is saying that Jesus isn't out to get even. Jesus isn't out to make people pay necessarily because he has paid for sin. And he wants reconciliation and restoration. So do you struggle with unbelief? Everyone in Mark's account here, it seems like struggle with unbelief in one way or another. Do you have doubts? Do you fear well, so did the disciples, the men and the women disciples. They both succumbed to fear. But fear isn't permanent. And it really can be overcome, just like we saw with Joseph of Arimathea. We also know from other gospel writers that the women will overcome their fear and will deliver the good news to the disciples, who they won't believe them. But the women overcame their fear. And eventually the, the disciples, the male disciples, will overcome their fear. Almost all of them were going to suffer a martyr's death in the name of Jesus Christ. They overcame their fear and they overcame their denials. And it was possible because of the empty tomb. It was possible because Jesus rose again and what he said was true and that he defeated death and he defeated sin. And so on this Easter celebration, what is different? It feels different than than any other Easter celebration you've probably done before in your life. Take that as a gift from the Lord. Take this as a gift from God to make us kind of contemplate on maybe some of the other elements of Easter that we just simply usually miss. Let's like take Mark's emphasis here. And by God's design, it was by God's design that we'd be in Mark and we'd be here and we'd be going through the current events that we're going through. May that inform us of how that we can worship God in a different way. Remember, minor key celebrations are no less celebrations. They're simply different. And they have a different feel to them. And they give us different aspects to consider. So what are you fearing? Do you fear that the empty tomb is just a story and it's not real? Do you fear that the empty tomb maybe isn't for you, maybe it's for other people? But you've sinned too much. 
I hope that what you've seen here from this text, I hope you see that that's just not possible. Do you fear that the empty tomb means that Jesus is out for revenge rather than reconciliation? I don't know what your fears are, but I would encourage you to look at this gospel, look at this reality, the empty tomb this year in a fresh way, is that even though there's a lot of negativity in this story here about people failure, that didn't stop the miracle. And it actually proved why it was necessary. And so for us to say that we are too great of sinners for the empty tomb or that God can't forgive us is to go against the complete purpose of Jesus dying and rising again. He died and rose again so that we could have forgiveness and so that we could have restoration. And so in this Easter celebration, let me encourage you to celebrate Easter this year, maybe in a more of a minor key. Let me give you some homework, and this is for our church family that is accustomed to getting some things to think through uh, throughout the week in response to the message. So I just listed a few things. Number one, list and pray about and, and discuss uh, areas of unbelief, maybe two or three areas of struggles that you have. Find someone to talk about that. So take a few minutes and, and list out a couple of things that maybe you struggle with in unbelief. And, and be honest, because most people have doubted whatever you're doubting, okay? Uh, most people have gone through that at some point or another, and, or they're going to. So be honest with your doubts. I tell people all the time, be honest with, with whatever you're doubting about God, about his love, about his word, and then talk to someone about that. Send an email, call someone on the phone, do a Zoom meeting, whatever it is, but talk about areas of unbelief, because that is why Jesus rose again, is so that we could conquer unbelief, and we could have courage like Joseph of Arimathea through Jesus. Then the other one is this. How would you finish this sentence? I am most afraid of blank. How would you finish that? I am most afraid of. Then once you fill in that blank, ask yourself, how does the empty tomb address that fear? How does the empty tomb address whatever fear that is? Maybe it's fear of other people. Maybe it's fear of failure. Maybe it's fear of fitting in. Maybe it's fear of, of uh, ruin. Whatever the case is, whatever your fear is, then contemplate how the empty tomb addresses that fear. So let me encourage you this Easter. This is a celebration like we haven't had before. And that's not a bad thing. It's not bad at all to Think about music in a minor key doesn't make it any less beautiful and doesn't make it any less special or less helpful. And so to think about Easter more in terms of how Mark has outlined it for us is no less celebratory, is no less helpful, and is no less accurate to what God's intentions are. So let us rejoice that the tomb is empty this year. I'm going to pray and then we'll have one more song. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the tomb is indeed empty. And Father, I pray that we would celebrate that today. You've given us many different ways to celebrate. You've given us different emotions. And we can have competing emotions at the same time. We can have grief and we can have joy. We can grieve unbelief, but we can be joyful that you can grant faith and, and you will grant faith. And, and we, we can grieve the fact that there is fear in our lives but we can rejoice in the fact that you are stronger than that and that your empty tomb means that, that sin's penalty has been paid and so there's nothing to fear. So I pray that this year's Easter celebration would point us to Jesus himself, for he is worthy of that.
In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.